the water's fine, homie, jump into the deep end, sow it, you will reap it, we talking how to start it, how to grow it, how to keep it, take a deep breath, you are now rocking with founders. Yeah, so I, uh, I want to start with, you have some interesting stories from cruise ship life. Tell us what it's like living on a cruise ship. I'm not sure, is this show X-rated or PG-rated? <laughs> like how Either you want. So it's um, like a succession episode. Yeah. <laughs> No, from a business perspective, it was really interesting at that age. I got on when I was just turning 21 and just like an ignorant kid that thought he knew the world, especially being an American, to get immediately thrown into a culture of on average 56 different nations were represented at once with the mix of employees that were on board. Number one, just like crash course in global perspective, just like how to interact with people, understanding nuance of psychology, like just understanding nuance of bodily behaviors, communications. But then I was in a sales role selling to Americans on the ship as well. So it was this really interesting dynamic of how do I communicate to my customer, but how do I also work cross-departmental to help me also sell to a different culture? Wow. So what happened? You were on there for what, three years? Is that right? On and off for three years. Yeah, the way the contract. For three years. Yeah. Never left. No, the way the contracts work, you generally are on for like six to eight months. That is nonstop. And you literally just turn around every seven days, every 10 days, nonstop. But then you're off for a month or two. You're literally unemployed. And then they offer you a new contract, get on the next port, get on the next ship. So collectively, I was probably on for a little over two years out of the three years. Oh, did you ever get seasick? <laughs> no, actually, I didn't surprisingly and we went through some gnarly storms and we even would go through norovirus would happen and the cdc would come onto the boat and as soon as we had some really low prevalency of it there was like a yellow flag warning version of cruising where they wouldn't stop the ship but they would make us all bask they would close down all the food stations and everything had to be hand served and it turned into this really weird like zombie apocalypse style cruise but we'd still cruise oh <laughs> so many places to go with this what were you selling to the americans on this future cruising so we literally would just book another cruise for them or we had this open deposit product where they could place a i think it was like 200 deposit on any future cruise in like the next five years and then you got paid a commission yeah you were a salesperson yeah to yeah, yeah. sell the, this stuff exactly that's crazy. It just speaks to how people can't fully enjoy the cruise when they're already like anxious and trying to buy the next cruise and put it on the deposit for it. It, it taught me a lot, almost took me to go through that to realize how I think more difficult identifying your customer is because I was in this kind of shooting fish in a barrel moment. You think about it, I'm on a cruise ship selling cruises to 3000 people that are on a cruise. So they always say, I think it's 3% are ready to buy what you do and 97% aren't, I had the inverse problem, which wasn't a problem, but it really skewed my view of sales as a kid. So I had to reconfigure what the value of that experience was, because that's not normal. In your current business, is your close rate 97%? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so what do you think that there are lessons for entrepreneurs? And if someone is a young person and they want to start a business one day, would you recommend they go live on a cruise and sell future cruises? Two-part question, 100%. I recommend anyone as a kid to go on to a cruise. And it's funny, there's this flexion where 
people then retire onto cruises too, because I'll see these like 15, 60 year old Americans come on as the pseudo retirement, a lot of musicians and things as well, which is a different question. But as a kid, it exposed me to things that I one would never afford perspective travel that I got. And then I was getting paid on top of it. On the business side, I would agree, depending on the role you're in, for sure. It's this weird hierarchy on the ship of what position you're in. But the sales program I was in, we had a lot of freedom to cross sell and develop relationships with the right departments. And that was a crash course in business, honestly, was you very quickly identified which departments had better leverage or better access to like your high value customers. So over time, we'd foster better relationships as we learned which areas like our frequent buyers would go to. What's an example? What are the high leverage places on a cruise ship? Art auctions. So the art sales is always a very common thing if you've been on a cruise. They're the, when they're done well, they're these very high energy, fun events where people are looking to spend cash. So we would cross promote or even cross sell between that department. What do you auction? Art. Have you ever been on a cruise? I've been on a cruise. I've never heard of any of this. I've never <laughs> really? been on a cruise. I didn't know there were oh, auctions. Was a huge so there's pieces of art on the wall. Yeah. And you're auctioning them off to people. It wasn't well, me. He's not. That was a department that we created a good relationship with. That was business learning as a young age of where are even the higher propensity buyers huh. in terms of relationships. Because we would do stuff like I had I went and like cross sold on Lido Deck and we were teaching like dance programs. It was fun, but it never yielded anything. So as I understood, obviously, like where to then spend and double and triple our time down, it gave me that value of identifying partners. Historically, we just talked about a technology partner now that I have in our company. So I very much had that view of find the kind of highest <laughs> close to your... If someone goes to an art auction, how much more likely were they to buy a future cruise than just mm -hmm. somebody at the buffet? I wish I had the quantitative data, but we always, we would open our desk specifically for an hour after the auction. And it wasn't Definitely normally more open. likely. Definitely and, more likely. Oh yeah, they would immediately come and we'd sell the open no, deposit certificate thing. It was, a, it was like a hundred or two hundred dollars. So we would sell dozens, if not hundreds of those every time after the auctions. That's brilliant. They were like primed. <laughs> Yeah, because they're willing to spend like the average, the two guys that I knew uh, for the company and art, their average sale order was like $136. But they would sell immense amount of volume. And that's just because Carnival is a different demographic customer. They're not high end. But they had this like little Winnie the Pooh etching that they would sell like a thousand of them. On, it's on the one. same, well, to different people. Different people. But How many people are on a cruise? There can be upwards of like 5,000 guests. Wow, so 20% get a Winnie the Pooh sketch. Yeah. Is there like a gambling section of the <laughs> casino? Yeah, like, yeah. There was there always a casino on board. We never did much cross promotion with that oh, yield. Why not? It was weird. I don't know why. I think there's more, maybe it's just like regulatory or even just personality. It's, you got to think it's a floating town. So we had to really work the personality of who is the head of each department as well and just willing to work with us. Wow. So how'd you go from that? to starting a business personal venture was my wife was offered a job in between contracts actually at a wedding which is a whole nother funny story and like a way to sell yourself but that job was here in new york and that Wait, was how do you sell yourself at a wedding actually i'm really <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife is just a really good networker 
And she just genuinely has a personal interest in people and knows how to pull out their story. And she just connected with an employer at the wedding that was looking for to fill a role. And she actually worked at the same company for 12 years. Wow. Okay. So then that led to you moving. Yeah. That we made the decision to get off ships at that point, came to here with her employment. And then I wasn't employed at the time. My first job in New York was in like financial and technology consulting. I hated it. And but used the leverage of kind of the data processing technology mindset to start the foundation of what Why'd you it? hate it. Because <laughs> it was just corporate America, as you can imagine. So you'd prefer working on a cruise ship. <laughs> with 5,000 people that are like either gambling or like eating or whatever, the auctioning and all that to being in corporate America. 100%. <laughs> on land. That's I was a master of my own domain and I had no boss on the ship. Cause the way our department ran, our boss was shoreside. So in essence, huh. I was running my own company at that point. No one I had to report to. And I was traveling around the world. Literally, I have friends all over the world I can still call now that are what I consider almost a community. It's how we met in a professional community now. I had a mm -hmm. professional community that I didn't realize when I was 20 that I have friends I can call on the rest of my life. That's awesome. Okay, so you hated the corporate <laughs> job. Yeah. Yeah, I used, I leveraged time instead of raises. So I systematically started to negotiate working less hours per week than raises. So I got to the point where I was working three days a week, but being paid full time. So I used those. How'd two, you do that? The same thing. I would say I appealed to a personality of part of my work was through a third party contracting contracting company. So for them, I still delivered the same output. They could still bill the same amount of hours, but they really didn't care how long it took me to get my work done. Huh. And then instead of me, I started at a meaningful rate, so I think they understood that I was being put and paid, underpaid, and I just took a gamble and said, "This is what I prefer, and you don't have to pay me more." And it worked. Hmm. And I did All right. That. So then, so then, how'd you? Had what happened then? I started to teach myself. This was like 2011, so not like early internet, but I'd say less ubiquitous software at that point. So I started to teach myself web development and I was building websites for like professional services communities like doctors, lawyers, CPAs, architects, anything that wasn't e-commerce and then selling those projects on the side until I made enough that was that inflection point that I was making more doing that than I was in my full-time job and left my full-time job. That was iteration one of what is now the same company I run now. And then, so how do you, you, know, you just run an agency and I find that people who are good at building websites or good at a task or good at a skill, find it difficult to scale into a business, right? Find it difficult to become a business and to have employees and manage those people and learn how to manage projects and all that. How did you manage that transition? It wasn't linear <laughs> by any means. I wasn't particularly good at websites, but I think I was good at finding the lowest barrier entry of what needed to be done to drive an effect to the business. That's really what I was trying to zero in on. I was like, what was the thing I could do to prove that inquiry, customer sale happened from whatever action I took? So I wouldn't even, there's still jokes. I'm actually colorblind. So there's jokes of for 
first versions of websites I built. We took screenshots of them and it's quite hysterical to look back at it. So I wasn't that particularly good, but I knew how to connect systems. And that's how I looked at billing systems. I looked at coding systems and how do I either pull data or push data to them through the web experience. So can you be specific, like how does this look to a consumer or how does this look if you're a marketing director or what have you? If consumers' perspective, they're not really going to see, but it's more of the, and the niche that's relevant now because I'm in solely healthcare is we're looking at coding and billing databases. So in the U.S. healthcare system, we use a very structured data set, whether you, whenever you get diagnosed with something and then whenever you get treatment, there's this universal language and data set. It's very one directional where that information goes. So we started to go, what if we tried to map the consumer language around what they were then diagnosed with and then what build to just understand the full user flow and started to work. And that's when we just doubled down into staying in healthcare. So there's not much perceived of this action externally, but it's really the internal just connection of what was disparate systems. Do you mean like you built like a portal for patients, like a my chart, but for these doctors? No, again, don't even think about it as even like the end client does not have a facing portal. It's more of how do we carry forward the experience between these disparate systems? And that's usually just through some form of API or cookie tracking or just encryption. When the different systems, you mean the billing systems? It can be EHRs, EMRs, billing systems that- Between locations of the same like provider umbrella group. Yeah, you start with the web experience of like, where did that inquiry come from? What were they interacting with? What did they search? What was the paid channel? Almost thinking about it from like a Google Analytics standpoint, but Google Analytics is not HIPAA compliant, so you can't really use it to its power in healthcare. And then there's a whole other string of complexity and making sure that entire experience is encrypted. But historically, that data would just sit in the end platform, like EMR or EHR. And I'm talking about this, this is 10 years of work to navigate to this. This wasn't like we opened the door and like the system was built and we figured it out with a magical wand overnight. There's a lot of mistakes and process to get to that. I just flash forward 10 years basically. So a patient goes to the website. I'm very interested in this. I came from a doctor's appointment right now and I waited for like 45 minutes and I like, <laughs> was like, I'm done, I'm leaving. I gotta go, I got a, I got other things to do. Then wait here with a bunch of other sick people. And right as I left, they're like, let me see. I like, just wait a minute. And then they got me in. And all I needed was like the threat of the ultimate, like I'm done. Then they brought it. So it felt like not the greatest experience. So I'm wondering like what, you seem to be really focused on this experience. And so is it true that you're helping providers provide a better, helping doctors provide a better experience for the patients? Is that yeah, I don't want to misrepresent our services that we come in and do any kind of like physical operations, but we do have the data for you and you left a review or we took feedback from you. And oftentimes it's the primary complaint point is wait times or 
not understanding your bill or just how they interacted with the staff. So we'll arm them with that data to show where they can improve and how they can improve over time. We're not going in and then training their staff or like looking at their operations from a physical perspective, but we have the technology and data to help them identify breakpoints in the experience. So the your platform is if I go to a website and book an appointment, that's your platform. Generally, we're our primary focus started out as a web development company. And one of the key lessons I was thinking about when you guys are throwing some questions was we started out as a web development company and kind of unknowingly acted as a custom development company, but didn't charge like we were. So when we looked at, we were getting the same requests from clients separately and treating them isolated. So the same linear time was put into each one isolated. But then it was a decision we had to make early. Do we handle each project separately and the amount of man hours it goes in become a truly custom shop in each scenario? Or is there much enough similarity between the requests that we can really make a product out of this and minimize the human hours? Is it safe to say that if you run an e-commerce company and you do $5 million a year selling shoes online, they have a great deal of understanding of where their customers come from, the return rate, they can yeah. rattle off their numbers. They know the numbers for yesterday. Is it safe to assume that if I'm a healthcare provider doing $5 million a year at the place downstairs, that they don't have that same insight? And that's what you're going after? Extremely, yeah. When you have these owner-operator businesses, and it's not unique to healthcare, but I think it just exemplified in healthcare because doctors are trained to do one thing and one thing really well. But when you're the business owner and then the primary revenue driver in the business, it's really hard to step back and understand the inputs and outputs. And that happens very often in these smaller to mid-tier practices is they just really don't understand where or how their business is growing. So we try and plug in our technology to help them make smarter decisions. Like what decision, like what's an example of success? case i'll be really specific on a blended example is just where to reinvest if that's they're spending money and it's very common we'll come in and it'll be spending a million dollars in google ads and they'll go it's working to some level because we're making more than we're putting in like Wait, there's in doctor's that, offices that spend a million, million dollars, dollars a year google on google ads, ads? I, that's not you know, quite a bit more and we're in the middle to lower tier of healthcare. there's a lot of health brands that spend considerably about more are you serious what, what are they bidding on like heart attack like what are they bidding on? I, I would imagine that's a bad keyword to bid on. that's a whole art and science in itself the biggest i think it's like it fluctuates between eight and ten percent of all online searches healthcare related huh. billions and billions of searches for us this is that connecting of systems so if i know you go in, and I don't know what your problem was, so I don't want to make it assume, but like you had a sinus infection. And they come in and like, oh, you really have turbinate hypertrophy. And you're like, I have no idea what that is, but sure, I trust you. And then it's going to require a septoplasty surgery. You're like, great, I have no idea what that is either, but I trust you. Those two words are how they code within the business of healthcare. So they understand universally how to get paid so everyone's talking the same language. I think there's 65,000 codes or something at this point. We took one isolated example of one diagnosis, one condition or one treatment and mapped 17,000 variants of terms that someone came into from what they searched online to just show the disparity of difference of you as the consumer, what you're searching and suffering from ultimately of what the business of healthcare calls it 
codes it and bills for it. So there's this massive exponential language difference. And that's how we're often bidding on the terms that we think are someone's intent for a particular type of care. That's really interesting. So somebody Googles, would you say sinus infection, it may actually be a gateway into more profitable things because somebody thinks everything's a sinus infection, but it's actually other more valuable things to the healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, you can lead with profit for sure. If that's the lens, but it, you more so hopefully that it's clinically correct where someone that's looking up a sinus infection may really be a recurring like chronic sinus infection and ultimately lead need some more invasive care. Hmm. So if we can infer, okay, that person's maybe been through primary care normal numerous times, they've taken medications and it's just they they need some secondary or tertiary care, they're probably looking for this specialist then. What percentage of the market do you think is like a ZocDoc equivalent? I guess here in New York, like I use ZocDoc for anything I need to book. Maybe that's unusual, but this million dollars a year is blowing my mind that like a primary care <laughs> physician or like a group could spend that amount of money in Google ads. It's not like a single doctor spending that by any right. means, but some of our clients are like private equity backed or something like that, where they're in 10 cities, you think on like a cost center basis, they're only spending $100,000 a year per location. So take that dollar amount for what it is. It's not mom and pop Smith practice with one doctor spending that. I think your original question on ZocDoc, it's hard to say. They're definitely skewed. We know ZocDoc really well from just we treat them as just another source of patient volume within the ecosystem or the whole landscape. They're really good at driving patients and understanding their value within just like their funnel, but that's only a single percentage within the landscape of where everybody makes healthcare decisions. So they're good for very common things as well. If you're just doing a primary like annual exam or you know explicitly what you need. We work much deeper in like secondary and tertiary care where someone's gone through the healthcare system, they haven't found the right care they need and they're looking for that hyper-specialist. Mm-hmm. That's often really, really where we sink our teeth in. So do you help with SEO optimization for these practices? Yeah, that's a primary service. Our web development CMS system has that built in, but that's a primary thing that we talk about is this concept of authority, that the system itself coded around what we see as the best practices that algorithms are looking for, i.e. organic traffic. What's primary? So SEO is primary, what would be secondary? Two core competencies for us that we, from a sales perspective, we talk about it as authority and acquisition. So authority is organic traffic, like our web CMS technology. How do we continue to position our clients as an authority, not only with the consumer, but with the algorithms itself? I can digress in a really technical conversation if we wanted to, that the algorithms themselves basically undemocratize the internet. If you talk about healthcare or finance, you're held to a higher standard to prove basically who's behind this website. So yeah, let's not mind being a little technical throw some chat GPT in the yeah. conversation. <laughs> so if you, why don't you, or do you use any sort of text generation sites like Jasper Copy AI or chat GPT or others to generate text that most optimized for traffic? We use those technologies, but n- more for internal processes to just our operational output by employee. I'm st- and it's still very early 
of just like how these technologies are being adopted. I'm very skeptical of just like using those as an input output, put that content out there to digest. And you've seen some like much smarter people than me put out some really near term case studies of Google supposedly has an AI system like exponentially smarter than chat GPT. They're just figuring out how to commercialize it from a revenue perspective. But as recently as a few weeks ago, there's a lot of case studies of websites that use these generative tech systems just being crushed organically, like literally zero traffic. You're saying Google can is they're smarter. flagging and identifying. So like their AI can detect the dumb AI. They're like, <laughs> come on, guys, this is obviously AI. Says Google's AI. Basically, so it's a bit of an arms race. Huh? Whose AI can fool the other? Yeah, I'm forgetting the guy's name. They put it in context. They're saying for ChatGPT, every <laughs> query costs them two cents from just a computing power standpoint. So think about the billions of queries a basically, if not a day, a week within Google. So if they underlying had the same technology, it would cost them, the estimate it would cost them four times their annual revenue just to handle the computing power of putting chat GPT into their search engine. So they're just trying to figure out how to commercialize and monetize it and not crush themselves. And there's then the whole brand side of it is chat GPT has no like historical brand value. Google's got to be a lot kind of higher barrier of trust because there's still a lot of misinformation within what ChatGTP is producing that Google right. can't just free open to the wild and they would destroy their brand. But so, okay, but you do help these docs with creating content, like whether it's blog posts or specialized, you do that? Yeah, we did that. Talk yeah, like human devoid beings. of AI, yeah. The side of that I think is unique is we lead the conversation of how to frame what they're thinking very medically into a consumer language. So we're peppering them with, if you want to talk about X procedure and you're naming them in this very dense mm -hmm. medical jargon, you're literally just not going to speak to the end consumer. So we'll give them the framework going, this is the keywords and the language and the questions either you incorporate into it or you give us the baseline medical consensus information, then our team will improve it to be a bit more consumer and lame and friendly. So there's this kind of back and forth seesaw process that we work with. Question, sorry, I'll stop after this one. <laughs> but I always wonder, can you track all the way from, say I make a Google search, like my head hurts and I click on your website for one of your docs and then I click on schedule appointment and then I come to the appointment. You're saying you can track all the way through from there was me that showed up at the appointment, that hit the schedule button and down to the actual words I typed in Google's search. You can yes. have that full, because I was with Google Analytics, it's just me. It never shows me keywords like, oh, 20 people searched this. It never tells me John. We're not identifying the individual. That, and I'll put a giant caveat, there's a lot of compliance and regulation around healthcare. I'm not like, oh yeah, look, Flavio's got like an STD. Well, no, I just mean, is it possible like, technically to know what the person Googled when they come to your website? Yeah, I'm just saying it's de-identified. But yes, and we can track. Well, it's gotta be identified because then you gotta track them in the actual appointment. like the procedure and et cetera, no? Yeah, but that data can be connected without identifying an individual person. To to you and your team. You're saying it's, it's identified by the docs, but not for you. Yeah, we can go down a whole another legal rabbit hole with like how BAAs work and right. what 
HIPAA compliance means. And then, but I don't think that's too exciting. But the short answer is yes. And that's the idea is can we start to understand when and where consumers make healthcare decisions online? And then when they came in, were they clinically relevant? Right. Were they geographically relevant? Were they financially relevant? Check, check. Okay. Match back that that inquiry actually made sense for that business. Let's shift gears to where do you see the future? Not just ChatGPT. I know it's so sexy for everybody to think that ChatGPT is going to change the world. I think this is the equivalent of in 2016, everybody said we would be in self-driving cars by today. <laughs> And obviously it's not true. We're not even we're not even that much closer than we we're in 2016. So while it is fun and sexy to think that ChatGPT is gonna take all of our where do you see the let's call it the health tech industry going and the advertising side of it? I'm still blown away by that Google AdWords number. <laughs> but where do you see those things going in the next five to ten years? Let's call it five years. Yeah, I think more verticalization for sure, and then just connection of systems. I think like I was almost alluding to the beginning, like individual technologies have become pseudo ubiquitous, but how you strategize them and then how you connect them to your business is a much more high level conceptual value. So these kind of more common tasks, I think can be not fully outsourced, but massively increased in their kind of time output. We have even some of our developers just using different AI systems to help create like a baseline framework of like, an API language or an API connection, sorry. So I think you're just seeing if it took you 10 hours to write that piece of content or write that API connection, you can condense that efficiency down to four hours because you're getting this like, initial framework to audit versus looking at a blank page. So I think just like in the efficiency level, I hope personally that just creates better work-life balance, to be honest. I don't think it's going to cause this like, huge revolution where we're all like bowing down to iRobots. I think it's just going to create a better efficiency that way. I hope we all look at the unit of time in a different way on a personal side. And the industry side, like you're saying, I think it's just a shift to like specialization and verticalization. What some people listen to the show are thinking of starting a business or very early in their business. What advice would you have for them or for yourself from five years ago or 10 years ago? I'll start with maybe if you've already started a business first. I'm not like an ideation guy by any means, but uh, starting a business is just being really honest about what you want out of it to start on like the individual's level. When I think about it, when I started, I just wanted anything other than the job I wanted. I wanted the <laughs> freedom of time, almost didn't care what it was. And then I got there and I was like, wait, okay, that was easy to do. And now what? And then that's when I identified the opportunity within healthcare. And then I really had a partner identify there's a business here. Like I could have stayed as a single consultant for years, probably made a good living, but then someone helped me identify, okay, there's processes that are repeatable under what you do. Let's take your specialty and build systems around it. And it took my thick headedness to get bumped into a couple of times that I think if I just really sat down and thought about it, I would have understood that is what I wanted. There was an opportunity there to even build a better system for me to own and control my time as well. I thought too small and too linear of just my minutes as what time could be. I like it. I like it. 
How how can someone find you? How what, what asks do you have, if any, of the audience? I don't know specific tasks, but they can find me. I'm pretty active on like trying to be around this healthcare martech cross section of community, and then the company Title Health Group on LinkedIn as well. Those are our biggest areas. But I'm always happy to talk to any entrepreneur really, but especially if you're in the digital marketing and healthcare space, to reach out to me individually. I love it. Awesome. Thanks for uh, Thanks joining for us in. today. Thank you for rocking with the homies. Taylor, Trusty, and Flavio. Seize the day on it. Until next time. Hold it down, hold it down. Hey.